Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written almost three dozen cookbooks. In fact, we've written 40 books in all, including knitting books and a memoir. Oh, this is astounding. But some of our books are The Instant Pot Bible, a book written for every size of Instant Pot. Every recipe is sized out for every size of Instant Pot. And the Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, Air Frying, is big right now. And that is a book written for, again, every size of air fryer on the market from small to big all the recipes are sized out so you don't have to do the math but we're not talking necessarily (laughs) about those in this show although we are talking about the new high-tech gadgets for kitchens and i suppose the instant pot and the air fryer count they do and we're going to talk about high-tech versus low-tech because the thing is you can get analog old-fashioned appliances and gadgets, or you can get smart, Wi-Fi, happy, electronically connected Mm. things. So you have to ask yourself questions when you go to buy something. Mm. And let's start with something simple. Everyone has a tea kettle, right? Mm. You have to boil water for making... I don't know that everybody... I'm a tea snot, and I have hot tea almost every day of my life, and I have a kettle for boiling water, but I don't know that everybody... Everybody has a coffee maker, They do have a coffee maker, but if you want to make tea, you need to boil water. If you want to make French press coffee or pour over, you have to boil water. Most people do it on the stove, right? They do it on the stove, but a lot of people have electric kettles. So here's the thing. I do. I love my electric kettle. So do you want to be able to start boiling water in your electric kettle from your bed with your phone? Or do you want to get up, go all the way into the kitchen and turn it on manually? Yeah, this is the question about smart appliances that turn on from your phone. And I should tell you that we had, it's now gone, but we had a smart steam oven, a countertop steam oven, and it only worked by the phone. It had <laughs> no, no controls on it. You had to work it through your phone. It could only be Bluetooth. So I just want to say that this is the coming wave. And I can tell you right now, I do not want a kettle that turns on. I could tell you that I don't like anything that I can only do through my phone. And here's why. And this is a problem we had with that steam combi oven. When our internet would go down or if our router would go down. Because we live super rural. When that happens, you can no longer use your appliances because they true. connect to the router as well as to your phone. It's so true. Without the router, it don't work. So It's it's um, the same thing. I have to say, and we're going to talk more about kitchen appliances, but I have to say that we live rurally and we can now get, we upgraded our boiler. Yes, we have a boiler a few years ago, but you can now get boilers and thermostats that work only through your phone. Yeah, you want to control your house, and it's, it's through your phone. It's a little scary when you live in a place where internet is dicey. I mean, we have great high-speed internet, but it does go down because the lines go across miles of rural landscape. So I think if you want to get appliances, major or minor appliances, that you can use from your phone, make sure that they also are able to be used directly by touching them. Right. That they shouldn't be exclusively. It's the same thing. And our next appliance up is a is a fridge. And of course, you might know smart fridges have become the mm-hmm. craze. These are fridges that monitor what's inside <laughs> of them. They can tell you on your phone. They can alert you that your milk is about to spoil because they record the dates of when you put things in the refrigerator. Or big brother is watching they what can, you eat. They can tell you 
when you're low on things, you're low on orange juice, you're low on whatever it is that you're low on, they can also keep a list of the things you routinely buy and what you might want to think now about restocking and many other options. Smart fridges are truly the wave of the future. And they scare me because if they, they know me. that I like a lot of watermelon, all of a sudden I'm going to be getting ads right. on my social media feed from That's the right. watermelon community. That's right. And I don't want to get involved with the watermelon community. And quite honestly, I'm okay to look in my fridge and see if I need milk. I don't need the fridge to well, do it for me. Listen, all what all this is about, and while it might be convenient to turn on your appliance from your bed, or it might be convenient for your refrigerator to tell you you're running low on cheese. I don't know. <laughs> I'm making this up. But it, well, that might be convenient, you know, to sit at work and get a text and say, uh, don't forget to pick up milk on your way home from your refrigerator. Oh, <laughs> from your refrigerator. Really AI in the refrigerator sending you. My, ref okay, my refrigerator. Okay, me. but wait, I want to say what this all is, it's convenient, but it is all data mining. Mm. And you are being mined for data in all of this, and you are being monitored for your use of things. Amazon just bought a big home electronic vacuum system, the Roomba. They just purchased it and acquired it. And their stated goals, no joke, is that they want this thing because that way they can map your house. They can actually lay out floor plans of your house. They will data mine the heck out of that thing and find out, for example, that you have an empty room. And I bet you 10 bucks, you'll start seeing ads for furniture, for redecoration, for for interior design services. I'm going to vacuum my it's own not, home. It's not, <laughs> it's not nefarious as in they want to come in and steal anything no, from your no, home. No, no, it's no, not like that. No. They want to know how to target you with ads and buying an electronic AI-ish vacuum cleaner actually allows them to data mine the surface area of your home okay, itself. Okay, now wait until those AI vacuum cleaners start to analyze what they vacuum yeah, up. Yeah, of course. So that they know what kind of dirt, what kind of dust. Of they course. Need. So the vacuum cleaners know whether you have pets and you start seeing ads for pet things because I mean, it knows you have a dog. One of the things that is so uh, been so problematic about the Ring system, the Ring home system from Amazon, is until very recently, essentially anything the ring cameras caught could be accessed by local law enforcement without even your permission. So let's say, you know, again, there could be a good reason for this. I mean, let's say the neighbor's house was robbed and they want to see a camera angle of the house of some God, why is it a guy? Why does that be a guy? Let's say some woman running out of that house. Why is it always a guy? Um, oh, so right. now you're blaming women for all crime. No, I'm not blaming you. all women. I'm trying to say that the the redirect is toward the male. But let's say see somebody running out of that house. Okay, fine. We'll be really PC. They, they, they see a they running out of that house, and they are running away, and they want to capture a camera of that. Right. Well, until recently... The Ring system allowed any law enforcement to access any video stored on any Ring system anywhere. That is now changing slightly. Yeah, I think they need to have a warrant. I'm sorry. That's just the way I feel about it. You want to get well, my personal stuff, you need a warrant. It is, it is a gray area. And part of the Blink and Ring system is without a doubt designed to data mine your personal property. Now, listen, person, I have one of these systems. So it's not as if we're somehow some paranoid weirdos <laughs> who live in a bunker in New England. But still, nonetheless, we have one of these systems. We do, but we don't subscribe. 
described. So nothing is no, stored in the cloud. Everything is stored here in the house on our own little drives. It's and true. That, we so. do store, but but I don't know. And I'm not smart enough to know whether, in fact, Amazon is storing it themselves, despite mm. my not paying Just for not the service. Just not giving us access to it. Correct. Mm. And I have a mm. feeling I'm being data mined at every corner. I mean, they want to know, for example, you know, that a Target delivery was made to your front door. Why? So that you'll suddenly see Target ads on your phone and in your Instagram feed and in your Twitter feed. Let's talk about another gadget that can be high-tech or low-tech. Are you willing to open your oven, stick an instant read meat thermometer into the chicken to see if it's done, or do you want a Bluetooth thermometer that stays in the oven and monitors the bird and announces it on your phone and says, hey, your chicken's done? Bruce actually has one of these Bluetooth <laughs> thermometers, and it I actually, used it, yet. <laughs> it actually has the ability to talk to him via his phone to say, you know, your, I don't know what it is, your roast beef is nearing done. I, I guess it's at whatever you said it is you, done. Yeah, right? you could set a temperature, and it'll actually, you could set it to tell you your, te- your meat is at 70 degrees. Your meat's now at 90 degrees. Your meat at 110 degrees and i don't know that i want that i don't know that i need that part of cooking is looking at it and seeing how brown it is and judging it i enjoy that process so i mean will i try this thing it was it was sent to me by the manufacturer to test and i haven't tested it yet and will i yes of course i'll try it out but I like the hands-on approach okay, to looking. Okay, and you know, let me just say that also we may be showing our age because we are, did not grow up in a fully wired world. Bruce and I are too old to have grown up in a fully wired world, and so we may be showing our age here uh, by resisting these things. For example, let me give you another example. Even though it doesn't have anything to do with that food, I have moved back off eBooks and I'm back to reading paper. It's because I find the experience of a book in my hand much more satisfying than the book of my, than the iPad or the you know Kindle in my hand and reading a book electronically. It's just me, and I think that has to do with my age. Here's a shocking stat for you that has nothing to do with food, but may have to do with the coming electronic and smart kitchen sometime early next year and this is a crazy stat gen z people will make up the largest part of the u.s workforce oh they'll be supporting my medicare (laughs) oh yay thank you you hope you still have your medicare (laughs) next year that that is a shocking stat we're not talking millennials we're talking gen z will be the largest single portion of the u.s workforce and these are people who have grown up consistently with technology their entire lives they're not even like millennials Millennials who came into technology in their teens or 20s. These are people who have always had it in their hands. And so they may not have this same resistance to smart fridges and Roombas that map your house and all that kind of stuff that I have. I guess, I suppose, having lived through Nixon, I'm just (laughs) paranoid enough. Nixon, that makes you sound like my grandfather. (laughs) I lived through Nixon. I did. I remember pulling up to the barber shop 
and sitting in the car with my mom, I was about nine years old, sitting in the car with my mom, listening to the resignation of Spiro T. Agnew before we went inside the barbershop to get my hair cut. So, yes, I remember Well, when we moved out of our Manhattan apartment 16 years ago to move to the country, one of the things that we found that I had saved was the New York Times from that day Nixon resigned. Oh, from some reason. I thought it was important. So now I think Spiro T. Agnew is more important, but that's just me. <laughs> so recently, Mark and I bought a new dishwasher. And dishwashers also can be smart. They cannot be smart. But here's something that I find really interesting. When you turn on your dishwasher, first of all, do you really care about a readout of how much time is left? Because most people, I think, like we do, do it when you go to bed. Or here's the thing I found when we were looking at dishwashers. You can get a dishwasher that projects the time remaining into your kitchen floor. Oh, I don't think I need that. <laughs> I don't want any disco in my kitchen, any lights on my floor. And let me just say, while you said that, we do every night set our dishwasher to go and go to bed, but almost every night. But let me say that most U.S. fire departments tell you not to do that because a major cause of house fires is dishwasher failure during the dry cycle. And most fire departments will tell you not to turn on your dishwasher when you go to bed. So I'm just telling you. Or when you leave your house. Uh, we are, especially when you leave. You wouldn't have the dryer going when you leave your house. You shouldn't have your dishwasher going when you leave your house. Mind you, we have our dishwasher going when we leave our house and we have it going when we go to bed. So this tells you something too not only about my resistance to technology, <laughs> but my lack of fear of old school appliances with heating coils that I grew up with. Well, we grew up with games like Creepy Crawlers, where five-year-olds were given hot plates <laughs> and metal tongs it's and true. metal discs, it's and true. you poured goop into the mold, and you baked it in an open hot plate, it's true. and you played with it. It's and true. I actually don't ever remember burning myself. I don't remember it either. It has this big tongs you picked mm-hmm. up the metal plates with. And, and then you put in a little dish of cold water to cool it down. Supposedly. And you I do, I'd love to do a research on that. How many kids burn themselves on creepy crawlers? Well, okay, this has nothing to do with cooking, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think I am really into my dishwasher projecting. <laughs> I, don't, I know that there are now dishwashers that speak to your phone that can tell you where the cycle is and you can monitor the cycle on your phone. Oh, are there cameras inside so I can watch it being cleaned are they really i don't know we didn't see any of those when we were looking for them but i i just find all of that a tad too much i i don't need to be that connected but i think this speaks to the world honestly the world is moving toward a place of greater connection and that connection affects not only social media not only twitter instagram and facebook and platforms like that but it invades even smaller parts of your life and the desire to be increasingly monitoring everything around you from blink and ring systems to systems that tell you where your dishwasher is inside the cycle. I think that's all part of the growing notion of connectedness as a virtue. And it's not connected to people necessarily, although it is, it's also connected even down to your appliances. I mean, just I'm just telling you that I think this invades every corner of it's your It's all life. marketing. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, I don't quite know how marketing can use this and how this can invade your privacy, but are you okay with turning your faucet on like a normal human being? Oh, God, you just, you just stack the deck like a normal human being. Or would you prefer just to use any part of the skin on your body, your elbow, your forearm, to touch 
any part of the faucet and have the water go on. Okay, here's my question about these because I have actually seen them in operation. How do you control the flow? I've always you can't. It's on and off. I well no, because I've watched it, and then I've watched people run their hand up and down it. So somehow oh. when you touch it, it goes on. Oh, so now you're stroking your faucet, oh. and I just don't. Don't, don't I, go there. I don't see. We actually we have friends who put this in, and friends that are much older than us, and they put one of these into their house because they are both always have filthy hands in the kitchen, and they don't want to be touching the faucets. And it's interesting because he's a retired surgeon, so he's used to washing his hands with foot pedals and knee pedals to control the water. I suppose that's right. And so it reminds him of his old days. Now you do have to run power then to your faucets. Yeah. Your faucet is now yeah. contingent. On power. So I would say to you again, if you get one of these things, make sure the water can be turned on manually. I suppose there's a way. Now now you're going to really think I live in a bunker somewhere (laughs) and I'm a total paranoid conspiracy nut. But I suppose, you know, in the coming water wars, which are coming (laughs) fast, especially if you live in the western part of the United States, in the coming water wars, I suppose there's a way that those kind of faucets might be set up so that they could monitor your water usage. I mean... Sure, they know when you've turned it on and when you've turned it off. I mean, I don't really actually know, but and I don't know that that's even part of the technology right now, but I'm sure that someone somewhere is thinking about that right now. But everybody out west has water meters on their house, right? If you're you're attached to public water systems, they know how much water is coming into your house. Of course, of course. But you wouldn't want to get a text on your phone that said you left your faucet running five minutes too long today. And you're being fined, and now you're being fined. It's one thing if you flush your toilet 17 times because you don't feel well or you're sick they can't really charge you for that but yes Are you, you sure wow so next time you get diarrhea it's going to cost you a 50 dollars fine this is really a long way around a food <laughs> podcast we have really come a long way well maybe diarrhea and food is connected but it's a long it's a way. straight line it's a straight it's line. a long way from where we should be talking about but i guess i guess in the end here i think that this is the honest truth i think that as a gen x person I am resistant to technological changes, although open to them. I love my smartphone. I love my iPad. I have totally embraced the technology of social media. And yet, at the same time, at the core of me is a kid who grew up without any of this technology Mm. around him. You know, when I I was really, really little, we still had that TV changer that went ka-chunk, (laughs) ka-chunk. Hey, you had a TV changer. We had to get up and walk across the room and turn a channel like an idiot. Well, we were we were solidly <laughs> Dallas middle class, um, so we had the kachunk kachunk chang- changer that made the noise that made the TV change on your black and white TV on the black and white TV. That's we like do you, now. If there, we didn't get a color TV till I was much older. I bet. I bet there are a lot of people out there who are like thirty years and younger who don't know what we mean when we say black and white TV. Oh, probably. I mean, we were late. My family was resistant to color TVs, and it did, it had everything to do with the fact that we didn't watch very much TV. Mm. So we had a TV. We had a black and white TV well into the early 70s, well into toward the mid-70s. My parents just – we didn't watch that much TV. It's really funny. I've spent – 
fast swatches of my life without a TV in my life, which makes me, I think, very weird for someone my age. But if, when I met Bruce, I didn't have a yeah, t- TV. Yeah, not me. I've always had TV in a thousand channels. Yeah, and I'm, I, I've spent whole sections of my life TV-less, which is extremely interesting. Okay, so that's all our thoughts about a smart kitchen and our resistance. I realize this was incredibly personal and incredibly about <laughs> basically us and what we feel about it, but we'd love to know what you think. If you want to drop any comments about this, this episode would be posted in the Facebook group Cooking with Bruce and Mark. You can uh, uh, leave your own comments. Maybe you have a smart fridge and you love it for various reasons. And while we might have trashed it, you might want to defend it. That would be a great place to do that. You can connect with us there or you can connect with us under our own names on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We'd be glad to talk to you there. And please consider subscribing to this podcast and rating it. The ratings are really important. We're doing this on our own, unsupported, as I always say. And the ratings really help us in the analytics. Okay. Up next, our one-minute cooking tip. Your recipe calls for Meyer lemon juice. What are they? Meyer lemons are a sweeter version of a lemon that is a cross between a lemon and a clementine and a mandarin style orange. Okay. And so now. So now your recipe calls for to squeeze a Meyer lemon and you can't find one. Use half lemon juice and half orange juice. What's ah, your answer? There you go. Really you simple. Mean, you mean fresh orange juice in this? Yes, fresh case. lemon juice and fresh orange juice. Okay, so there you go. You don't need to find Meyer lemons. I think the taste will be slightly different, but it's It'll work. it's close enough for government work, as we say. Up next, our interview segment in this week's episode of the podcast, Bruce is interviewing Nancy Baggett, the Lavender Queen, and her (laughs) book, The Art of Cooking with Lavender, she has made for many of the last years a complete career out of the culinary virtues of lavender. That's coming right up. Today, we're speaking to the author of some of my favorite cookbooks, including the All-American Cookie Book and Simply Sensational Cookies. Nancy Baggett has devoted the past few years of her culinary endeavors to unleash the culinary potential of lavender. Her latest book is called The Art of Cooking with Lavender. Welcome, Nancy. Hi there, Bruce. How are you? I'm great. And I want to ask you right off the top. What inspired you to take this culinary journey with lavender? Okay, well, you probably remember, I certainly do, uh, the era where all cookbooks, or it seemed like most, had to be low-fat, and if if even better, low-sugar and low-salt. And so what can you do? You and I both know the answer, herbs and spices. And I realized, even though I was using all of these herbs and spices, I was not using lavender. And I said, okay, I'm going to go on a journey and learn about lavender. And so I got started and I expected it to be really tricky. You can't just use any old lavender in the same way that there's peppermint and spearmint and blah, blah, blah mints, some of which don't taste that good. You want culinary lavender. Anyway, so I thought it was going to be tricky, but when I got into it, I realized lavender has not as complex as vanilla, 
but very complex. Lots of notes. Uh, Angustifolia, which is the culinary lavender, and we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, Angustifolia has all kinds of floral notes and spice notes and herbal notes, of course, piney notes. So um, I just took it upon myself to use everything I could think of with lavender. And I came up with some incredibly wonderful surprises, which I can talk about. You have come up with some amazing dishes with lavender. But let's first talk about those varieties. You mentioned a culinary lavender. Is there only one variety of culinary lavender? No, absolutely not. Um, lavender, culinary lavender, again, called angustifolia. Or if you're, if you're looking for labels, it wants to say angustifolia or at at least culinary. No, there's all kinds of varieties. And I was experimenting yesterday, actually, making one of the classic recipes of lemonade, making that with different kinds of lavender. The one that people are most familiar with is called Provence. We assume it came from France. Um, a fellow Art Tucker who was a research expert said, no, he thinks it actually came from Canada. It has, it was named for Provence, but is not. It is actually not the best, in my opinion, culinary lavender for many dishes. However, it's the most popular. It's very herbal. Um, in this, and so it has some piney notes. It has some minty notes. And it's really good for savory dishes. Uh, for example, let me give you a great example. I was amazed to find that um, a fried rice, you can make it egg fried rice or pork fried rice, whatever, throw in with the ginger and a little soy sauce, throw in some dried chopped lavender buds, and it will give a new dimension that is wonderful. That's one of the reasons is that lavender likes, likes soy sauce, and it also loves ginger. Lavender and ginger. Make a lavender ginger cookie. Um, in fact, the gingerbread spices and lavender are wonderful together. So if you've got a cookie that you want to take up a notch, throw a little um, dried chopped lavender in there. Amazing. What other uh, culinary lavenders are out there that people should be looking for? Okay, so what I suggest, actually people go, oh, I need to get the best, I need to go to France. I've been to France and looked at the culinary lavender. It's actually a very minor crop in, in France. 20% of all the lavender grown is culinary lavender. They are very big into the cosmetic industry. Most of the growers grow for the cosmetic and soap industry. And so they don't grow much culinary lavender. When I was there during the lavender season a couple of years ago, uh, before the pandemic, I uh, observed some in the markets, mo but most is not for culinary. So you're better off, in my opinion, to buy American. And how do you do that? You just go and you type in culinary lavender or lavender grower is near me. And then you look and see if they sell culinary lavender and or better yet, during the season, take a trip out to one of the lavender farms. It's so soothing and fun, particularly when the lavender is growing, which in many cases in the north part of the country, it still is and going to be blooming soon, if not now in the southern parts of the area. In fact, all states other than Alaska and up until recently, Florida had lavender farms. I understand Florida even has one now. 
So you can go um, look at their websites. A lot of them are mom and pop operations, so they're not always open. Find out when they're open, when the lavender's blooming, and go. Um, many do sell culinary lavender, um, and that's what you need to check on a website and order some. Is it hard to grow it yourself? And should you be looking to grow it yourself or is it better to buy it from someone else? Uh, the culinary lavender um, is actually easier to grow than some. And the one reason uh, around the country and one reason we call it English lavender or the French call it la vraie. In France, of course, Southern France, you can find it growing as a weed by the side of the road, but um, it's not so easy here because that climate is hot and dry. And if you don't have a hot and dry and sandy soil, as a matter of fact, I grow it in two places in my own yard right here. I live in suburban Maryland and I have a little yard and um, unfortunately, my climate is not good. I live at the bottom of a hill, poor drainage. We have clay soil. Um, we don't get that much sun because of the trees. I am not approximating the climate in at all of, of Provence or the Mediterranean. So I treat it as an annual, sorry to say. However, I have a little spot in the back of my son's property that overlooks the Severn River, which leads into Annapolis and to the bay. It's high on a hill, it gets full sun, it gets a nice breeze, the soil happens to be sandy. And I have a great crop this year. I had the best crop ever. It took me like four hours to harvest and I was in heaven. So you've harvested your lavender. Do you use it fresh or dried? I use it both. Um, actually, most lavender within two or three days, even if you think you're going to use it fresh, and you stick it in a jar and keep it in water. I'm doing that. I'm teaching a, a Zoom class and I'm trying to save it for tomorrow. It gradually will start to dry. Even if you set it in water, it really is an herb that wants to be dried. So you can use it fresh. And I do that. Like I say that the um, fried rice or a stir fry that has the soy and ginger in it, so chop up fine. And the, the interesting thing is when it's fresh, what you want to use are the spikes. Unlike almost any other herb, you're using the bloom heads. The We call them buds, but they're actually technically called calyxes. And, and that's what you want to use. If you get a little bit of the, of the tender stem in there, no problem. But you want to chop it up and avoid the, the tougher stem bits. Even culinary lavender does have a powerful aroma. So... How do you get a delicate essence and flavor from a plant with such a strong smell? Okay, well, you want to use it lightly. I would say, especially for, for those who aren't that experienced with the flavor, it's powerful in the same way sometimes that um, thyme or oregano or um, rosemary, for sure, can be powerful. And, and I would say in that respect, use it like rosemary, which you know, a little sprig will do you sometimes. <laughs> Lavender's the same way. A little, a little spike will do you, or maybe half a teaspoon. Um, so use it lightly. The other thing I would say is, and this is a major tip, is think of it as one of the instruments in the symphony. Um, in other words, if you are having a symphony, you have horns, you have you have strings, you have, and lavender is one of these ingredients that you can use. And let me just run off a few of them. 
so that people know where to get started. And one of them I mentioned earlier was ginger. Almost any recipe that you have ginger in, um, a lavender goes beautifully. Actually, I just created um, for my uh, for my newsletter a recipe that's a lavender ginger syrup has a little lemon in it too. It's amazing. Um, but pineapple, who would know? Pineapple goes great with lavender. So if you've got a, any kind of a pineapple dish, um, all kinds of fruits, berries. Um, Orange, citrus, uh, lemon and lime are both wonderful with lavender um, in terms of, of uh, savory dishes. You can use lavender with um, any kind of a chutney. It's great in a chutney. It's great in um, a barbecue sauce, especially honey lavender barbecue sauce. Lavender has a, a many varieties of the angustifolia do have a bitter edge. And if you're using Provence, which is in fact a cross of the angustifolia and another one called latifolia, which is more powerful, more bitter, more camphor. That's why I don't like Provence as well. It's great for savory, but not so. Put it in a barbecue sauce. It'll add a really lovely um, piney floral punch that's fantastic. You've mentioned twice stir fry lavender with ginger with soy sauce. I find it surprising given that that I haven't seen lavender pop up much in Chinese cookbooks and in Asian restaurants. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure. I suspect since it's a Mediterranean herb, it maybe took it a long time to get to the Far East. Now, it is occasionally used in Indian cooking uh, on, on rare occasions. So I suspect maybe it's difficult to grow there. I've not been to China. And of course, you know, the traditions um, make a big difference. And if it didn't not naturally grow there, it was hard to grow. And yeah, I, I have seen people that live, for example, in Sonoma or in the West Coast where you can grow it more easily. Oh, it grows like a weed. For most of us, it will not grow like a weed. And perhaps that is the case in China. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm kind of surprised at that, too. I, I would imagine I'm not that experienced with Thai, but I'm thinking that it probably would go well in some Thai recipes, too. It really does blend well as well. I have a Mediterranean um, herb mix in the book, and, and it's actually a very interesting and really useful combination of lavender thyme and oregano it's a great combination you can make a terrific mediterranean kind of french bean and vegetable soup um, that's really that uses that it's great in a white bean herb dip for example that i have uh, created for the book and so it actually does have notes of many many different herbs and, and floral ingredients and citrus. One of the key ingredients in lavender is something called linalool or sometimes called linalool, depending on where you're from. And it has a lot of floral components and citrus components and goes well. Oh, I mentioned it goes with uh, lemon and lime. Sometimes lime is neglected with orange, blood orange. It makes a pretty syrup with blood orange. So um, it's actually has a lot of notes that can be picked up and used with other things, which I love, which you probably as a chef love too. In your book, your recipes range from savory to sweet. You've got everything from apps to desserts. 
Were there any surprises for you along the way? Well, one of the surprises that uh, the, the good news and the bad news is that I had seen lavender vinegars and using just uh, apple cider vinegar or white vinegar. I don't really think it goes that well because it's it has a bitter edge. And uh, I didn't find that either one of those particularly enhanced. It. However, balsamic vinegar or white balsamic vinegar. I know there are those who look down their noses on white balsamic. Well, it's actually has a sweet and kind of floral flavor and lavender just, if you take a few sprigs and you stick it in that bottle and instead of spending 20 bucks at a gourmet shop and getting you know your balsamic with a touch of lavender, you can make your own and you don't need to ever take them out, the, the sprigs out if you don't want to, because the vinegar will keep them fine. If you wish to take them out, you can. But that just gives you an additional aroma and flavor. And, you know, you're always, you and I are always working for depth of flavor, and it'll add a depth of flavor to both of those. So that was the surprise, the good news and the bad news on that. Oh, chocolate. Let me tell you a minute about chocolate. I know people are always wanting to pair it with chocolate. It's kind of tough. I did not find unless you get exactly the right culinary lavender. I bought a bar that's French and the lavender was an enhancement. I don't often find that chocolate is particularly enhanced with lavender. That said, remember what I said about the symphony of flavors? If you use lavender with, say, cardamom, throw some cardamom in there. Lavender loves um, cardamom with chocolate. Um, I have hot chocolate for breakfast every morning. It's just an indulgence. I don't always put lavender in. When I put lavender in, I put in some uh, always cardamom because it's wonderful and ginger in there too. I don't think by itself that unless you get exactly the right culinary lavender that it's going to be a great experience. But if you use some, put some, and, and as again, the symphony of flavors is somewhat amazing. You could put a little cloves in there and cinnamon in there if you wanted. Um, but I don't think alone it necessarily works that well with chocolate. That was a bit of a surprise. I'm a huge fan of juniper and I love to throw juniper into savory stews and soups. Does lavender work in meat dishes sort of as well as that would? Yes, it really does. Uh, we didn't really talk about that yet, um, except a stir fry. And I, as I say, a pork stir fry, a ham stir fry with the, a little bit of the lavender in there is great. But actually, um, pork dishes, uh, I, I have a sausage dish in the book. Um, basically, it's an easy stew kind of dish. And it actually is in the same way that you can throw in a little rosemary and bring it up. And again, a little bit will do you with with uh, lavender, as you know, as well as well with um, uh, rosemary. Otherwise, you you get it overpowering. And yeah, it's great. It's also good with smoked dishes, not just smoked pork, but smoked, uh, for example, duck. Uh, a a sort of a powerful flavor, for example, of of smoked meat goes great with lavender in the same way if you think about it as rosemary would those piney kind of elements work 
fantastically well. I think that lavender needs to be in everyone's uh, pantry staple at this point, and you certainly have explored it. You share all your knowledge in your book, The Art of Cooking with Lavender. Uh, Nancy, where can people find out more about classes you're teaching and what you're doing and sign up for your newsletter? My newsletter is uh, easily, easily signed up for. You just go to the top of Nancy's Lavender Place, and there'll be recipes, pictures of recipes, a, a few blog posts, and uh, a number of a, a number of variety of recipes. And there's also a sign up for the newsletter, which I'm really having fun doing. I only do it four times a year, so I make it, you know, really count. Like when I'm not actually posting one i'm working on recipes for the next newsletter and i do enjoy photography for them too lavender is so beautiful in that respect you asked in the beginning why lavender well one thing it's the most beautiful of herbs and it's probably the most fun to harvest i love being out there in the fields with it i've seen your photos on instagram and facebook and your photos of dishes with lavender are absolutely beautiful nancy baggett Queen of Lavender, Cookies, Baking, one of my favorite cookbook authors. It was a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thank you for sharing insight with us. Thank you, Bruce. It's been great to be with you. I I will have to confess to you that I have tried lavender in savory applications and like it. I'm still resistant to it in sweet applications. Well, like with the first ice cream. Yeah, well, ice cream, we put a lavender ice cream in our first book, The Ultimate Ice Cream Book, and it took a lot of testing to be able to get the lavender level right so it didn't taste like bathroom deodorizer. And <laughs> In the end, the answer was just a touch because yeah. a little a little hint, as Nancy said, a little bit can go a long way. And just a hint of lavender is mm. beautiful. Yes, a sprig of lavender in a beef stew is too much. Mm. But a couple little lavender buds in a beef mm -hmm. stew is kind of an amazing thing. It gives it this really wild floral aromatic but barely noticeable mm -hmm. consistency um, to the flavor. It's beautifully done. Okay, so that's almost it with our show uh, an interview with Nancy Baggett, a one-minute cooking tip about substituting Meyer lemons, all about high-tech kitchens. But we got one segment more, and that's what's making us happy in food this week. You get to go first. Waffle cones. Because <laughs> I went shopping yesterday. I Waffle went. Cone. I went out to West Hartford to go to Whole Foods and to buy some stuff. We have my cousins coming for the weekend, and I wanted to get some groceries. And you heard us talk about ice cream a lot. We talk about Canton Valley Creamery, which is our favorite ice cream place in the area. And I picked up a couple of quarts of ice cream for company for dessert. And before I left, I went to the window outside mm. and I got a waffle cone filled with chocolate chocolate chip ice cream. Mm. And I ate it in the car <laughs> driving home. And it was really good. So I, I'm into waffle cones. I love waffle cones too. Because I, the ice cream keeps falling down yeah. into it as you choose. Yeah. The ice cream and cone ratio is perfect to the last bite. And if you are not in a car and, and are not worried about making a mess out of yourself, <laughs> what I like about waffle cones is you can bite the bottoms of them off about half way through and then start drinking the melting <laughs> ice cream inside of it. It's a whole thing. I got a whole thing with waffle cones too. What's making me happy in this week is fried chicken. And believe it or not, and this is a funny thing to talk about, it's not fried chicken that you make at home. Rather, it's the fried chicken that you can buy at your local supermarket already fried. And this is why it's making me happy. Because occasionally, as a treat, we have this, but we live super rurally, as you know, and there is no delivery. There's no DoorDash. There's no Uber Eats that will even come anywhere 
nowhere near our house. And furthermore, there are no outlets to sell such things that would come anywhere near our house. But occasionally Bruce buys fried chicken at the grocery store and it goes in the air fryer. Mm -hmm. This is one of the great things about air fryers is the air fryer can remake a rotisserie chicken, fried chicken, all those things. Stick that stuff in there for a couple minutes at 350, 375, along in there. Wow, it, it is so crunchy and hot and tasty. Yum. It is better, it's better than I can imagine. And I didn't have to dirty a whole kitchen to make it. And guess what you're having for lunch today? Oh, fried, fried chicken. chicken. Oh, well, maybe we should end this podcast. So that's it. We're going out and I'm going to get some fried chicken. We're glad you're here with us on this journey. Thanks for being a part of what we do here on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We would love to be able to further connect with you, become friends on social media, talk more about food, or just share the bits of our lives together. And check out us on the next episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. 